This is the fourth week of our series, Origin Story. As we said, it's a series that's based on the Pentateuch. We learned the first week that the word Pentateuch comes from the Hebrew. Penta means five, tuch means useful tool. So you put these five books together, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, literally means the five useful tools. And we're going through this series. There's a couple of things that I, I want us to learn, uh, a couple of lessons here. One, I want us to see how these five books fit together and weave this story, but I also want you to understand how these five books lay the foundation for everything we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. And I want to begin this weekend by just pointing out the fact that every Christian here, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've been reconciled back into a relationship with God, every Christian here this weekend represents a pilgrim, pilgrimage. Every one of us, whether you're watching at another campus, whether you're listening online, every one of us, we're on a journey with God. And the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he tells us what this journey looks like. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God at the moment of salvation took you on as a project to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? That means the way I act today should be more, more like Jesus than how I acted a year ago this time. How I think today should be more like Jesus than it was last year's. My attitude should be more like Jesus. My behavior, how I handle my relationships reflect Jesus more now than it did a year or two ago. I am being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now understand, Romans chapter 8 verse 29, it's a prophecy that's in the process of being fulfilled. And it will not actually be completed until we get to heaven and we have those sanctified bodies. We will be like Jesus. We will know as we are known. It's going to be incredible. But even while we're on this earth, the journey that God is taking us on is to conform us, to make, his, make us like his son, Jesus Christ. You can call it spiritual transformation. You can call it discipleship. But that's the journey that we are on. Now, let's be honest. For some of you here this weekend, that journey has been rewarding. For some of you, it's been exciting. You would say it's been fulfilling. But for a lot of you, when you think about the journey that God has taken you on, it's been marked by disappointment, pain, doubt, maybe disillusionment, possibly struggles. But I think we've all learned on this journey that there's no such thing as instant spiritual maturity. There's no such thing as instant life transformation. We're just not automatically conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're on the journey and we're all somewhere along the way. And so I'm not surprised to discover that God put a book in the Bible that talks about the journey. And it doesn't end like a fairy tale. See, not all Bible stories end with the giant being killed or the Red Sea being parted or the disobedient prophet making an amphibious landing via a fish. See, they don't end that way. They don't all end with fire coming down from heaven and proving once and for all that Elijah's God is the true God. And Numbers falls into that category. In fact, it is the story of a tragic journey. It's about a group of people, maybe this sounds familiar, who knew better, but they didn't live better. And they suffered the consequences of a decision that they made at a critical juncture in their life. And it affected them big time. Now, we need to look at the book to get the whole story. But let me just give you some review as we jump in. If you were here the very first week, we opened our series by talking about the book of Genesis, getting an overview. We got to chapter 15, and we saw that out of the blue, because God is sovereign and he can do whatever he wants to, he picked a guy named Abraham. We were introduced to Abraham. And even though Abraham's dad was an idolater, even though Abraham was an idol worshiper, God picked Abraham and said, hey, Abraham, guess what? I'm going to bring through you a great 
nation. And because of you and this nation, all the people, all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. And what God was saying was, Abraham, through you, I am going to bring the Hebrew people. I'm going to bring the nation of the Jews. And through that lineage, I'm going to bring the Messiah who is going to be the savior of the world, who is going to give everyone an opportunity to be restored back into a relationship with me. Well, if you're going to, if you're going to make a great nation, you better have a son. You got to start somewhere. So he had a son named Isaac, right? Then Isaac had a son named Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. And we read in the book of Genesis that Jacob and his 12 sons and their wives and their kids, they settled down in the land of Canaan. We now know it today as Israel. But while they were there, they suffered a severe famine, but they discovered, thanks to Joseph, remember the brother who was sold into slavery, who made his way up to prime minister, who knew that the famine was coming, so he set aside food. Thanks to Joseph, there was food in Egypt. And the book of Genesis closes with the family of Jacob and his sons and their wives all moving to Egypt. We end the book. And then we talked about at the end of Genesis, there's a 350-year period of silence. 350 years passed. And when you get to Exodus, after the 350 years, all of a sudden, there's a Pharaoh that has come on the scene. It's 350 years. He doesn't know about Joseph. He doesn't know how he made his way to prime minister, how he saved the nation of Egypt. But what he does know is this, that Joseph's family, when they settled, they have become a big nation. In fact, in that 350 year period, those 12 boys with their families have grown to over 600,000 men and they've become a threat to Egypt. And as a result, the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt and they're enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. So now we have 800 years that have passed since Jacob and his boys were in the land of Canaan that we now know today is Israel. But through a series of miraculous events, Moses led the people out of bondage. God brought them to a place of protection in the wilderness, and we come to the end of Exodus. When you get to the book of Leviticus, we find these people, they're three months removed from Egypt. So they've been gone from Egypt for about 90 days. We find them camping at the base of Mount Sinai in the desert. They're there for about a year. And while they're there, they receive the written word of God. They get the Ten Commandments. They also get the blueprints for the tabernacle. They're told whom to worship. They're told how to worship. They're even given a place to worship. And last time we were together, we left the Hebrew people at Sinai waiting for God to instruct them in regards to their next move. Let me show you just a couple of verses to give you some perspective. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 34. It's the last verse in the book of Leviticus. It says this. These are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. So in the Leviticus, you turn one page, you get to Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, and it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And you read stuff like that all the time in the Bible. You get those days, you don't pay any attention. But let me put it in perspective. They've left Egypt. They've come to Sinai. They've been there for a year, the first month of the next year, and the beginning of that second month. So they've been there for about 13 months, and now they're waiting on God to give them direction. And God is getting ready to tell them that he wants them to begin a journey. And it's a journey that's going to take them north into the land of Canaan that God has promised to give them as their own. So understand, God is preparing the people at the beginning of Numbers for that journey back to where their forefathers lived under Jacob almost 800 years ago. But before we jump into the story, let's just get some basics down about the book. First of all, how about the name? 
I mean, good gracious, why does a book that talks about a pilgrimage or a journey, why does it have the name Numbers? You know, if I was writing the Bible, I would have called it The Journey. Doesn't that make you want to read it? The Journey, right? But you get the answer if you get the Numbers chapter 1, verse 2, because God told Moses, take a census of the whole Israelite community. So there's the answer. God says to Moses, I want you to count. I want you to number the people. I want us to figure out how many people you have traveling with you. Verse two, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listening, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. Now, why did God want Moses to go through this, to write down every name of every man over 20 who was able to serve in the army? A couple of reasons. First of all, to get these people on the move, remember they're going to move, you got to mobilize them. And that's going to take leadership. That's going to take some structure. But second, when they enter into the promised land, they're going to have to fight. They're going to have to all of a sudden get involved in battle. And that's going to take organization. I mean, can you think about the simple logistics of trying to get two to two and a half million Jews moving? It must have been incredible. I mean, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of people that attend our Hope Campus every weekend. We don't have millions. We can't even get but about 20% of you to get to church on time. Can you imagine trying to get two to two and a half million Jews, tents down, sleeping bags rolled up, animals ready to move out at seven o'clock in the morning? It must have been incredible. And so God says, listen, let's get a handle on how many people we've got so we know what we're working with. So you get to Numbers chapter one, verse 45, and it says, all the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total, and I want you to notice this, was 603,550. So we have the first numbering of the people, and I say that because there was an, actually a second occasion where God had Moses number the people. In fact, 38 years later, after this first census, God tells Moses to take a second census, Numbers chapter 26, verse two, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. And notice what it says in verse 51, the total number of men of Israel was 601,730. Now you remember the first census came in at 603,550. 38 years the population has dropped. Well, that's a little surprising because we learned in the book of Exodus that the Hebrew people were very prolific people. I mean, they grew incredibly as a nation, right? But when you get to this number, you realize that the first census, there was actually 1,820 more men than in the second census. The population declined. Why? Well, that's the story of the book of Numbers. Let me give you a couple of curious facts that may interest you. It may not. The journey, first of all, from Mount Sinai to the land of Canaan, the promise, it took, it took 11 days. You're like, Mike, how do you know that? Did you walk it? I, I wish. But actually, it's, it's simpler than that. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. See, you don't have to be a genius to figure that out. Do you know how long it took them? 38 years. Now, if I were hearing this for the first time, I would ask why. I mean, it's one thing to get lost, right? But to add 38 years to an 11-day journey, that, that's a whole different issue, right? Here's the second curious fact. No one over the age of 57 entered the promised land except two guys, Caleb and Joshua. Moses didn't even make it. 
I mean, our hero who came out of retirement of being a shepherd at the age of 80 to lead the Exodus, he doesn't even get in. So this is what I want to do. The, the book is actually broken down into three sections. I want to give you a quick overview of what's in the first section and what's in the third section. And then I want us to camp, put camp in that middle section, those middle five chapters this weekend. And chapters one through nine, that first section, they're in the Sinai desert. They're preparing for the pilgrimage. They're preparing for the journey. I mean, can you imagine how excited they were? They're anticipating this. They're thinking about their future. These are people that spent 430 years in slavery. These are people who've spent the last 13 months in the desert at Sinai. And finally, they're moving into the land that God has promised to give them. We're going to see in Deuteronomy, they're going to live in houses they didn't have to build. They're going to enjoy vineyards and gardens that they didn't have to plant. Their kids are going to get into soccer leagues and baseball leagues. I mean, life is going to be good. They've never had a normal life. You can just imagine their excitement. So in the first nine chapters, God is preparing them for that journey. He's teaching them how to fight because they're going to have some battles, a lot of things going on in that first nine chapters. When you get to chapter 10 through 14, that middle section, that's when they actually make the journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And then in the final 22 chapters, we have these people walking around in circles. In fact, they traveled in an unknown route in the wilderness for 38 years, 38 years. And during that wandering experience, they finally learned to trust God as a new generation comes on the scene. A whole generation died off. I want to go to chapter nine. Let's go to that middle section. I want to spend our time there. So we've got the people, they're jacked up, they're pumped, they're ready to move out. They're standing near the tabernacle. Uh, they're waiting to depart to the promised land, the land of Canaan that God has promised to give them. They've been in the desert. They've been slaves. They're going to a land that says, man, it flows with milk and honey. It's going to be incredible. This is what they've been looking for. So you get to chapter nine, verse 15. On the day of the tabernacle, on the day of the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law was set up. The cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. And wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. So when the cloud moved, they moved. If it went to the left, they went to the left. If it went to the right, they went to the right. You know what that means? They never had to question the presence of God. They never had to question the direction of God in their life. They never had to question the will of God. Now let me ask you a question. Don't you still wish it still worked that way? There was just a cloud. When it moved, we moved. If it went left, we went left. Never any doubt, never any questions. Always clear what God wants you to do. But this is what's interesting. You're discovering the story. Even though they had the cloud and even though they had the fire, they still screwed it up. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me we don't need a cloud. It tells me we don't need faith. I mean, we don't need a fire. We need, we need faith. And that's where these people blow it. In fact, when you get to chapter 10, verse 11, it says on the 20th day of the second month, the second year, so we're 20 days later than chapter one, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai, traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest. Look at this, in the desert of Paran. And my guess is you've never been to the desert of Paran. You've probably never seen the desert of Paran. It's not a very pretty place. In fact, we have a picture of it and you can see it's rough, it's rugged, it's barren, it's rocky. It looks like the place that they've come from in the Sinai desert. It's not a place you want to be, but guess what? That's where the cloud stopped. 
And they're not excited about the clouds stopping there. In fact, you can see the response in chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. And now think about it. They begin to grumble. They begin to complain about the journey that God has taken them on. They just started. And they're already complaining. By the way, have you ever done that? You ever complained about the journey? That God's taking you on. Yeah, we've all done that, right? We pray, God, just show me what you want me to do and I'll do it. God, I am surrendered. You just show me your will. That's all. I just want to be in the sweet spot of your will. I don't care what it means. I don't care where you take me. If I'm there, I, that's what I got. I just know I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to be fulfilled. Just show me your will. Show me where you want me to go. And God says, really? All right. Yes, really. God says, so cool. Okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go in that direction. And we're like, hmm. God, I wasn't really planning on going in that direction. In fact, God, I didn't expect that direction to be a part of the journey. And see, before you know it, what happens? We start to grumble and we start to complain and we start to ask why and we get the martyr syndrome and we see everybody else going on their journey and their journey looks so much more exciting than our journey, so much better than our journey. And all of a sudden we're martyrs. Why can't I go on their journey? But not only that. We tell God, God, listen, I'm going to go on a journey. I'm going to be in the center of your will. And I'm going to trust you to provide for me everything I need for the journey. So what does God do? He gives us what we need. Not necessarily what we want, but what we need. And all of a sudden we don't like it. And that's what's going on with the Israelites. They begin to grumble and complain about the food. Chapter 11, verse 4, the rabble. Isn't that a great name? The rabble, the troublemakers with them began to crave other foods. Remember, they've been eating manna that God's been delivering from heaven. It's this angel food, right? And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, other than, uh, let me remind you, being a slave. But anyway, the fish we ate at no cost, also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. I mean, you can just hear them Belching. I mean, they're just, oh, we're living it, right? But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Now, here's my principle. Wrote it down right here. It takes a heavenly appetite to enjoy a heavenly gift. Let me put it another way. You've got to want the things of God to really appreciate the things of God. In other words, if you don't want what God wants you to have for your life, let me tell you something. You're never, ever going to be satisfied. Now, I realize that all of our situations are different, but I'm telling you what, we all have certain expectations when we begin to follow God and we begin, to begin, we begin our journey with God. And, and things don't always go the way we thought they would go. In fact, let me just promise you this, they will never go the way you think they're going to go. And when that happens, we begin to say, God, Man, I miss the good old days. God, if you would just send me meat like in the good old days. God, just, if, you could, if I could just have some melon and some cucumbers. I mean, have you ever done that? We've all done that, right? I mean, when we came here, when we, I mean, Laura and I, we prayed over nine months about coming here and starting the church. And when God finally made it clear, man, just go, just go. 
We're like, God, we are in the sweet spot of your will. And we're going to go and we are so happy. And we know you're going to take care of us. And you're going to supply all of our needs. And God says, I am. I'm going to take care of you. And the way I'm going to take care of you, you've been wearing suits and carrying a briefcase and sitting behind a desk in a cush job for the last 15 years. So I'm going to let you frame houses in North Carolina in July and August. See, I'm going to provide for you. And if that's not enough, I've worked it out so you can be a bag boy. With all that education you got, you can be a bag boy at Food Line. So I had my black slacks and white shirt and red bow tie and a little red apron. I could handle that. I didn't mind bagging groceries. I like people. But when that 17-year-old snot-nosed pimple-faced boy came up to me one night, and if that describes you, I apologize. <laughs> and he says, Mr. Lee, before you leave tonight and check out, make sure you clean the bathrooms. Man, I am back there mopping and cleaning toilets thinking, God, I am not happy about this. I mean, I had a home in Southern California, Northern California with a pool and my kids went to private school and I had an office. People clean my bathroom, you know, and I don't like it. This is stupid. I hate it. But that's what we do. That's how we think. You know what? God looks at us and says, rabble, rabble, just rabble, right? Verse 31. Now, I love this. I wish we just had some meat. Look what it said. A wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. God says, you want quail? I will give you quail up to your tail. I mean, two cubits. That, that's 36 inches, people. They couldn't even walk because there was so much quail. Verse 32. All that day and night, all the next day, the people went out and gathered the quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. A homer's 43 ounces. 10 homers would be 430 ounces. Divided by 16, 27 pounds of quail. Everybody's got 27 pounds of quail. Then they spread them out around the camp. Look, look at this. While the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. See, this is why you need to bring your Bible. You could write in the margin right there. First account of Montezuma's revenge. I'm serious. That's what's going on. In fact, this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 106 verse 5. He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. Sound familiar? They got what they ordered. They got exactly what they wanted. It didn't satisfy them. Let's go to a French restaurant. You go in there, the music's pretty. It's decorated great. You look at the menu, it's so beautiful. It looks so good. You don't know what you're ordering, but it looks so good. I'll have that, it looks good. Snails, you get snails. Like, I didn't know I was ordering that. That's just the way life is sometimes. You don't get what you think. By the way, just so you know, right before I came out, I know some of you are excited about the World Cup championships and all that. Uh, I just saw France surrender. They're not even going to play. So anyway, that's, that's, anyway, just, anyway that's, just, that's, just, that's free. That's the kind of extra information you get when you come to Hope Community Church. My point is simply this. We create this picture in our mind of what it's going to be like to go on this journey with God. And we start to plan accordingly. Well, God, this is what we want. And this is what we need. And this is what it should look like. And God is like, oh, I mean, is that really what you want? And we're like, yeah, that's what I want. Not only that, that's what I need. And if I get that, I'm going to be happy, fulfilled. I'm going to be satisfied. So we get it, but we don't like it, but it's too late. And it's all because we started the journey, never really trusting God. Understand this is what's going on. The Hebrew people wanted God's plan, but they wanted it their way. Sound familiar? 
Well, things go from bad to worse. Chapter 13, verse one, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. It's a done deal. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So Moses, he picks out 12 guys to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They go and they spy out the land. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev, onto the hill country, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good? Is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So they send these spies. They go into the land. Verse 23, when they reach the valley of Eskel, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. By the way, the symbol for the Israeli office of tourism to this day, and we saw it all the time we were around Israel, is two guys carrying a pole laden down with a cluster of grapes. To this day, it comes from this story. But understand the spies, they brought back more than grapes. They also brought back a heart of unbelief. Verse 27, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. And here's the fruit. Here's the proof. It's just as God said, verse 28. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Termites. They live up in the hill country. The Canaanites are down by the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people for Moses and said, hey, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Remember, God's already said he's going to give it to them. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We all saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. You might want to put in your Bible, giants. Giants, this is where Goliath came from. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we look the same to them. So they take a vote. All in favor going in? Two. All opposed? Ten. Chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only, if only we had died in Egypt. Notice this phrase, are in the wilderness. Hey, people, be careful what you ask for. Remember that phrase. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? But what did God say? He said, when you get to the land of Canaan, I'm going to give it to you. Yeah, you're going to have to fight, but I'm going to give it to you. It is a done deal. So here's the question. Why are they even voting? You see, God wanted to send the spies in so they would come back and say, you cannot believe how enormous the people are that live in that land. I mean, it looks like the off offensive line for the Dallas Cowboys. These guys are huge. But you know what? Our God can kick all their butts. See, our God can put a smack down on them so hard they'll have to pull their pants down just to be able to see. I mean, that's the kind of God they worship. See, they didn't do that. They had the wrong perspective. They compared the giants to themselves. You know what they needed? They needed a David perspective. When David went out to battle and Goliath, he heard Goliath cursing God, he says, I'll take him on. And they're like, he will squash you like a bug. And David's like, well, that giant's not my problem. 
That giant's God's problem. And God already knows how it's going to happen. He just needs a who. And see, they didn't have that perspective. They needed that. See, there's no giant bigger than God, you know. They were focused on the wrong thing. They were focused on how. How are we going to do this? And God just, I don't need it. I'm already going to give you the victory. I just need a who. I, you really ought to get my book. It's a good book. By the way, somebody asked me. It just went on Amazon. But the reason I want to say something here is I'm not retiring just because I wrote a book. And I say that for a reason. Some of you keep going around and tell people I'm retiring. And I'm getting ready to leave. I'm not retiring. I just wrote a book because for 40 years, Lars has been bugging me to write a book. And I said, I don't have anything on my heart to write a book about. And if I ever do, I'll write it. So I wrote it. And that's why it's there. And so I'm not retiring. So let's don't talk about that. As God is my witness, God can strike me dead right now. And I mean that. Laura and I, you probably think we're stupid. Laura and I, I just turned 62. We have never had even a two-minute conversation about retirement. About the timing of what it would look. Nothing. We just like, hey, we know this is what God's called us to do right now. And that's what we're going to do to God tells us otherwise. So wh whoever you are, because I keep having people, yes, so-and-so told me that you were, uh, please stop it. Because I'm going to have to punch you in the throat if you don't. <laughs> I don't want to do that, but I will. I will. I will. So anyway, I'm stuck. But anyway, back to the story. See, we can't go in giants, but that's what happens. You know, if we look at the journey that God's taken us on from our own perspective. So we can't do it. We can't go in. Well, the, re the result was disastrous. Verse 27. How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them as surely as I live, declares the Lord. Here's the phrase. I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. What did they say? Numbers 11 to if we'd only died in the wilderness. In this wilderness, your body will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. In other words, you're, you're going to die in the wilderness. That's why no one over the age of 57 made it in. 19, 38 years, 57. Verse 30, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb and Joshua. Moses didn't go in because God told him to speak to a rock and water would come out of it. But Moses was having a bad day. And out of anger and frustration, he struck the rock. And God said, whoa, 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 Moses, wait a second. You're my role model. You're supposed to be my example of obedience. And you disobeyed me. You didn't do what I said. You don't get to go in either. It's interesting, I... I uh, a couple of weeks ago, Laura and I were having one of those, you know, profound conversations. You have one about every decade. And um, we were reflecting back over our lives. We're getting ready to celebrate 40 years of marriage, December 1st, 25 years since we actually landed in North Carolina to start the church. I turned 62. A lot going on in our lives. And so we were reflecting back over our lives and we were talking about just some failures and screw ups and mistakes that we've, we've made along the way. Actually, we were talking about some failures, screw ups and mistakes that I have made along the way. And, um, and she was asking me about them. And literally, I was just saying, hey, yeah, and I know that was horrible, but this is what God taught me. And this, how, this is how God changed me. And this is how I do things differently and how I view things differently. And this is how I listen to him now. And so we're having this conversation 
And we talked about how gracious God is and how full of mercy he is and how he loves to give us chances to get up and clean ourselves off and move forward. But this is what hit me, and maybe because I was preparing this message. God is a God of grace and mercy. And God will give you second, third, fifth, hundredth chances. And he will use you regardless. But let me tell you something. When you don't follow God and you disobey God and you screw up and you find yourself wandering in the desert, you might accomplish things for God, but you won't accomplish all you could have accomplished. You won't reach your full kingdom potential. Think about it. Moses led the people out of Egypt, but he didn't get to see the promised land. David, a man after God's own heart, but God said, you can't build that temple. Too much blood on your hands. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, wrote some great stuff. He didn't get anywhere near his kingdom potential. And I think that's why he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, his journal. He said, you know what my recommendation to you is? Remember God. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't make the same mistakes I made. So I just want to tell you, because we're a church that's about grace. We're a church about loving people where they are and encouraging them to grow in the relationship with Jesus Christ. But I wanted you to know something. When you disobey God, when God says, I want you to do this, and you say, no, I'm going to do this. When the Bible says, no, you need to live this way, but you choose to live this way, and then you're going to wander for a while. God's going to take you on a journey in the desert, and you'll come back, and he'll forgive you, and he'll use you, but you won't accomplish what you could have accomplished. And if turning 62 got me to the point where you needed to hear that from me, it's worth getting 62, right? But the lesson I've learned along the way is simply this. You better take God seriously. When God tells you to do something, you better do it. When he tells you not to do it, you better not do it. Understand this journey we're on with God, it's not multiple choice. It's not let's make a deal. God said, hey, do it my way. But there's going to be consequences. Three major lessons live on. Here's the first one. And this is so practical. Complaining is contagious. If you're a grumbler, if you're a complainer, I'm just telling you, you will, you will infect other people with your negativity and your, and your critical spirit. And I know we cloud it up. You know, I'm just one of those half-empty kind of guys. Or I'm just a realist. No, you're a negative jerk. Most of you, that's just kind of the... And I'll be honest with you, Christians are some of the worst. Music's too loud. Lights are too bright. It's too hot. It's too cold. Why are we selling Starbucks? Why aren't we selling Starbucks? Why do I have to park where someone tells me to park? Why are the songs so long? It seems like the songs are so long. And where's the cross? I mean, good grace, I hit this over and over and over again. Understand, that's the way the Hebrew people responded until God finally said, that is it. I have had it with you losers because of their complaining and grumbling. David said this in Psalm 141, verse three. He said this, and I'm gonna do a whole series about the, the, the words of, of life and death out of Proverbs this fall, but he says this. Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. What does that mean? Well, when I, when I put this guard over my mouth, when I speak, every time I should ask myself three questions, four questions, and you should probably write these down. Here's the first one. Is what I'm about to say helpful? Second, is it going to build up or tear down? Third, is it going to benefit those who are listening? And here's the fourth one. Am I actually talking to people who can really help me? 
Let me just tell you, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing. There's nothing wrong with thinking it's too cold or too hot or the music's too loud or the lights are too bright. Nothing wrong with any of it. I mean, you can have unity without uniformity. But here's the thing. Are you having those conversations with the individuals who actually have answers? If not, it's grumbling, it's complaining, it's wrong, it's inappropriate. And I'll just tell you, small groups are the worst. So let me tell you how to stop it in your small group. Next time you're in your small group and someone says, hey, what did you guys think of? And before they can finish the sentence, stop them. And say, hang on just a second, before you go there, before you finish the sentence, what you're getting ready to say, is it helpful? Is it gonna build up or tear down? Is it gonna benefit us who listen? And are we the people who can really help you? And if not, let's just not go there. I'm telling you, you do that once in your small group. Now, no one may talk for a month, but that's okay. You've solved, you've solved the problem. You gotta solve the problem. But here's the thing, complaining is contagious. You can put one person in a small group that are thrilled about what God's doing at a church and let them stay there long enough, you can poison the whole group. So be careful about that. Here's the second one, doubting can be disastrous. It says in chapter 14, verse 28, so tell them as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say in this wilderness, your bodies will fall. This is what God's saying here. I'm God, you're not. I don't follow you, you follow me, or there'll be consequences. And I think he ends it with like, any questions? Now let me just say this. My guess is some of you are at a disastrous stage. You're at a crossroad. You're getting ready to make a decision that is going to shape your future. I would really, really encourage you, take God seriously. If God's word says don't do it, don't do it. You may be dating someone who's not a believer. They may even be a believer, but their values don't line up with you. And God says, don't be unequally yoked together. That's not God being mean. That's just God having common sense. You're just asking for a world of hurt. You're going to have conflict at every turn. And you know what you'll do? You'll do it because you're in love. And then you'll be in my office wondering what happened. See, I'm telling you, take God seriously. And here's the third one. Wandering is always humble. It's always humble. And you know what? We've all been there. I've been there. A journey that should have taken 11, 12 days turned into a 38-year nightmare. And see, some, that describes some of you. Because you turned left when you should have turned right. You've been wandering around the desert for 38 years. And you're even thinking, why, why am I not where I should be? Why is everyone else there, but I'm still back here? Now we find Moses standing with a new generation of people 38 years later, Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two. We'll look at this next week, but I'll close with it. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. In other words, God just wants you to walk by faith. God wants you to trust him. God wants you to obey him. 
Listen, if your business is suffering, but you know that you're in God's will, hang in there. He knows what he's doing. If your marriage is suffering, maybe it feels like it's on the rocks, but you know that you're in God's will, hang in there. He knows what he's doing. If you know that he has a life mate for you, but you haven't found that mate, trust him. Just trust him. Work the plan. He knows what he's doing. Don't run ahead. Don't lag behind. Don't assume that you're smarter than God, so you just take matters into your own hand. I'm telling you, if you wander, you'll be humbled. And I'm just going to leave that thought with you. Let that sink in for a while and percolate. And we'll pick this up next week when we look and wrap up the series with the book of Deuteronomy. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that Jeremiah reminds us in the book of Lamentations that your mercies are renewed every morning and your faithfulness is great. But sometimes, Father, we're our own worst enemy. As we've seen in the book of Leviticus, we talked about the fact that your word that you've given us is our guide for life. And when we come to crossroads and when we have to make decisions, Father, and the young people that are here this week, and if they would just listen, how much less heartache they will have in their life if they just go to your word and ask themselves, what does the Bible say? And then live accordingly. Many of us sitting here this weekend, including this pastor, we all bear the scars of thinking that we could do it our way. But Father, you remind us, doubting is disastrous and wandering is humbling. But we thank you that it brings us back to you. And we thank you that there was a new generation that entered the land. And we know that you still have great purpose for our lives. And plans not to harm us, but to prosper us. We look forward to seeing how you're going to do that. But help us make the right decisions. Help us make the right decisions. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We're so excited to be a small part of all the great things God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download our app to find ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. If you would like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus.